This is Jess, and you're listening to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. This is a really special episode today. I am joined by Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson from This Day in Esoteric History and Obradamics, two of the best podcasts <laughs> around. I'm not kidding. I talked about Obradamics so much to my therapist that I started listening. <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> it was outstanding dr carter jackson thank you for joining us i'm really thank really you. excited to have you here i'm likewise. such a big fan <laughs> likewise likewise it's gonna be fun this is gonna be great do you want to start by talking about viola davis and how she egotted or is that like <laughs> later <laughs> I know. I'm so, a lot of my friends are still mad that Beyonce did not win album of the year. So like yeah. there's, there's that turmoil, but EGOT status for Viola Davis is like, first of all, it's, it's, it's about time, I guess we can right? say like, felt like this was meant to be in her future. <laughs> like, it felt inevitable. Imagine, yeah. I can't imagine her not being an EGOT winner. So I don't even know what she won the Grammy for. Do you know what she won? Her audio book, which is, I feel uh, like the go-to oh. sort of. Course. Like everybody's I waiting for their grips for that. That's insane. Oh yeah, that's how everybody e got it. That's how like Barack Obama e got it. Like it's a sneak around. It's they're oh, not. Oh man. <laughs> anyway, how they get it in there? That is. But congrats! I'm very happy for her. I'm very happy that Beyonce has won the most Grammys of all time. Oh my god, um, so well deserved. Yeah, it was a crazy night. <laughs> Such excellence. Okay. Um. So your specialty is um 19th century Black history. Mm-hmm. Is that the is that a simplification? <laughs> I mean, like I, at this point, I just say I study the lived experiences of black people because like mm-hmm. I have to teach across my expertise. So I'm, I, my bread and butter is the 19th century, but I do the 20th century. I look at slavery. I look at the civil war. I look at the long freedom struggle. I look at violence and political um, spaces. And so it really runs the gamut. But for my, where I feel, I say most at home is in the 19th century, talking Mm -hmm. about the abolitionist movement in particular. Mm -hmm. And so you are the critical race theory people, (laughs) like everyone is yelling about. Is that you personally? I promise I'm not. (laughs) Like if you had asked two, three years ago, this would not even have been, you know, a thing, obviously. But now it's become, yeah, there was, um, I can't even remember what it's called. Some right wing group that has like a list of professors that are like, you know, like destroying America. Sure. And uh, I made the, <laughs> I made the list. Yeah. I'm like, actually really proud. I was like, wow. I would have on there with Cornell West. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. So, you know, um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of that is just like they get pull quotes from different sure. interviews I've done or something. And they're like, she's promoting violence. And it's mm-hmm. like, because I said the word violence. I mean, so, yeah, so it's wild. Um, I mean, a lot of scholars sort of laugh that stuff off, but it's actually I shouldn't say that it's no laughing matter when you no. think about like what. Florida is trying to do what these um, really radicalized groups are trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually very brilliant. I mean, the fact that the study of history, what goes into textbooks, like that's no superficial thing. Mm-hmm. And they're aware of that. And I think um, it's too easy to sort of, you know, dismiss them. We really yeah. sort of have to grapple with that. Truly. And it's it's weird because they're focusing on such seemingly absurd things that it's mm-hmm. it's hard to take them seriously, but you're like, yes. oh no, no, we absolutely have to. Like I see that you're mad about the drag queen thing. 
I don't know how to like meet you there. And yeah. have an, yeah. you know, like, a conversation about it. Yeah. <laughs> bad. It's it's really bad because it just means that like I think the things that we sort of took for granted before about like what gets discussed in the classroom, what sure. gets put in a textbook. None of that is off the table anymore. Everything has become so politicized and so marginalized in terms of the way that we interact with one another that it's just, the work is even harder now for historians. I really feel like that. Absolutely. So speaking of, so your one of your specialties is the abolitionist movement, mm-hmm. and my and while nineteenth century American history is not my forte, I listen to a lot of this podcast called "The Stay in Esoteric Political History," so I'm learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I, like growing up, when I was learning about slavery and the abolitionist movement, I always remember being very, even as a, a teenager, being very aware that both sides of the argument were fact we're checking the bible as their oh, yeah as their backup for their point of view could mm-hmm. you speak a little bit to the relationship between christianity and uh slave attitudes towards slavery mm-hmm. yes so i mean they go hand in hand in a lot of ways so mm-hmm. the way that slaveholders use the bible or i should say weaponize the bible was a way to say like oh, this institution is is meant to be because mm. they would use like things like the curse of ham. I don't know. Sure. Like, Bible scholars are there know <laughs> like the this can, really yeah. um, esoteric moment in the Bible where <laughs> uh, Noah's sons is, uh, one of Noah's sons is cursed and, and he is sent to be like the descendant of all black people. And mm-hmm. so all black people were meant to be. He was enslaved. marked with dark skin yes, as a all, yes. thing of shame, which is like, yes, yes. there are all sorts of like really crazy ways of sort of um, making a rationale for why black people should be enslaved. And so, you know, they also pulled scriptures that were like slaves need to obey their masters and, mm. you know, slaves are supposed to be, um, you know, that this is the human order of things that mm. actually this slavery is a good thing for you. I'm civilizing you. This is what's best for you. Um, and people believed wholeheartedly that what they were doing was, um, was like a religious um, um, moral duty, if you will, mm. to enslave people, to keep them enslaved and and to be a good master. That was the goal, was to be a good master. And it was all for their own good. Is oh, that absolutely. All right. okay. absolutely. Very paternalistic. Very, very paternalistic. And enslaved people who are not completely unfamiliar with the Bible, because if you think about like West Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Christianity was in West Africa before the Europeans are really there. Um, and so it's not a foreign religion to them, but they mm-hmm. really grapple, grasp on to Christianity in major ways. And they look more at the Old Testament for their um, influences and for their understanding and ideology about their own plight so they see themselves as like the children of israel they see themselves Mm -hmm. as oppressed as enslaved they are looking for the moses that's going to lead them to the promised land they are looking for deliverance from god all of sort of the negro spirituals are about this deliverance this Mm um and this sort of israel pharaoh archetype um, to make sense of their own circumstances as well. Mm-hmm. So you've got two competing, you know, visions of how people are using Christianity in the Bible, how people are seeing Christ. Um, 
And yet it it becomes a real problem. (laughs) I mean, especially during the Civil War. Like when you think about the whole creation of the Southern Baptist um, Conference, Mm -hmm. those were white Southerners that believed in slavery. And they were like, well, we're going to fight for the Confederacy. Like this is, we're going to completely split the church based off of, you know, free labor versus slave labor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and a lot of those iterations that you see today manifesting in the Southern Baptist Christian Conference is because of those direct lines to like slaveholding and white supremacy that are still being perpetuated to this day. It's it's absolutely insane. And, and are people still using the guise of Christianity to criticize Black people? Mm, that's a good question. Probably not in the same ways that um, that they did during slavery. Like there's no uh-huh. no one today, hopefully, is like slaves obey your masters. Uh-huh. Like, like nobody. I'm not like going to say nobody but, thinks that. Well, because... No, I know. <laughs> I hope. I, 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 I know. We would hope that they would be very French. But yes. there is this sort of rationale that Jesus or Christ is a white God and that white supremacy is sort of the unexamined norm or or way of being and that everybody sort of has to get on to the train that is white supremacy so they won't say that but like I attended church all my life I went to black churches mostly but also white evangelical churches and like that was the tone it's like oh you're welcome to come in kind of uh-huh. Don't really change anything. Just be that good black person <laughs> that, that doesn't ask us to change any part of our culture or mm-hmm. examine any part of our own racism. And then you'll be fine. And, you know, uh, that does not sit well with a lot of black people who are sure. like, wait a second. <laughs> I, is this Christianity? Is this Christianity? And so, you know, you get huge rifts. You see it in the long freedom struggle with Billy Graham and mm-hmm. um, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who he's telling Billy Graham, like, you got to call this racism out. Like, this yeah. is ridiculous. And Graham refuses to do it. Um, and it it causes major rifts that we still experience to this day. Mm-hmm. It, it, so it's been a historical problem that that white Christians are hesitant to call out their fellow Christians in their very obvious racist way. It, it yeah. seems to me that... Well, because it's white fragility. Sorry. You know when you answer your own question when you're about yeah. to ask it? <laughs> I was going to say, why is it so much harder for people yeah. to identify, call mm. racism, racism? Yeah. But it's it's white fragility. But it's, it's even more than fragility. I feel like it is having to... Um, okay, so James Baldwin has this great quote. I'm hoping I don't botch it. But he basically says, to act is to be committed and to be committed is to put yourself in danger. Mm. And then he says, mm-hmm. in the minds of most of white Americans, this is the loss of their identity. And what he's saying is basically like, <laughs> if you want to do this work, you want to be committed, mm. you have to forfeit your power, forfeit your privilege, relinquish your position and all the things that fortify your identity as a supreme being, right? If you're not willing to do those things, um, then how do you then how do you engage in this work? Like how do you say, okay, let's go about making the world better, but I can't step down from this platform, but I can't get off this um soapbox or I can't I can't dig into my pocket. If mm-hmm. you want me to make change, let's talk about change, but don't require me to go into my pockets. 
like that i think um it's actually the the mechanics of the change is not really what's hard like mm-hmm. thinking about um redistribution of wealth seems sure. very simple but putting that into place um I mean, people will lose their lives over yeah. uh, trying to preserve white supremacy and um, and these ideologies that are harmful to everyone, not just mm-hmm. oppressed people, but all people. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that enslaved people were preaching about for a very long time. Like mm-hmm. they saw the civil war as justice, right? Yeah. Like you think about the fact that they had been predicting enslaved people oh, there's going to be a comeuppance. There's mm-hmm. there's going to be a moment in which God is going to, you know, fly down judgment on you. And mm-hmm. and they see the civil war as that moment. It's like, do right yeah. or or lose your life. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people do in the civil war. Oh my goodness. Well, it's has there been another group besides Black Americans who went from enslaved to holding political office, like inside oh a generation? No, is that? No. I could not think of any other situation there where that would have happened. No. So we just covered this in my class uh, last week. We we're talking about Reconstruction and how during Reconstruction, which is a short, you know, period, maybe 11, 12 years, mm-hmm. there are over fifteen hundred black elected officials 1500 is that more than we have now (laughs) I'm pretty sure I don't know how many people are in like the CBC the Congressional Black Caucus but Uh, it's a lot so you had people that within one generation not even a generation people who were enslaved some like Robert Smalls who was enslaved and then becomes like a local leading official in South Carolina. He's going to Congress. Like you have black senators from the blackest states ever, Mississippi, South Carolina. Um, you have radical change. You don't get that in Jamaica. You don't get that in, mm. you know, Barbados or, or Cuba or Brazil. You could say you get it in Haiti because Haiti becomes an all black nation. Sure. But Haiti doesn't even get diplomatic recognition until the civil war mm-hmm. from the United States. So, um, yeah, it is. It just shows you like reconstruction gives me hope because it shows me that like you can make massive amounts of change mm-hmm. in a short amount of time. Like you don't necessarily need 200 years to make things right. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, reconstruction is not perfect. You know what <laughs> I mean? There, there's like it's not uh, an oasis or whatever, but the amount of change that happens for everyone. There's mm-hmm. free school for everyone. Everyone gets public school. Everyone gets educated. There are roads, there are insane asylums. There are hospitals for the elderly and infirm. There are so many, there's banks set up by black people, for yeah. black people. Like the kind of economic wealth, political enfranchisement that comes together all at once is remarkable. Um, and you don't really see it again. Sure. Was would that have been around the time that Tulsa became sort of the the economic? So Tulsa's a little bit later. So later? Oh. if Reconstruction is like between the end of the Civil War, eighteen sixty five to like eighteen seventy seven, is usually where scholars sort of cut it off. Mm-hmm. You still had when we say cut it off, it's not a clean cut. So it's not like the next day everybody's back in the Dark Ages. <laughs> but over time, you know, you slowly get the eroding of black citizenship, the eroding of black rights, slowly but 
surely people start to pick up black codes and um, black laws that restrict people from voting. And there are small pockets in which black people have been able to carve out like these um, communities of success for themselves. And that's what Tulsa is. They move all the way out west, all the way out to like really Native American country. And they are creating these successful pockets. Um, But the problem is, is that success puts a target on your back so if you are I don't know just a black junkard and you're lazy no one cares about you you're not disturbing the status quo you're not debunking white supremacy but if you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're getting educated like success made you a target and so these communities that were functioning pretty independently for the most part I mean they Uh circulated all of their dollars within the community that um enraged white communities that they could not grapple with black success um they didn't want to compete with black people either um and so they took a lot of these towns uh, arkansas elaine arkansas you see these massive race riots you see them in uh, louisiana and florida and south carolina um what would it's awful it was happening in the north too like isn't seneca falls part of that Seneca Falls has there. So there are race riots all over the country. There's Uh lynchings in Minnesota, like in places where you're like, are there even black people? (laughs) (laughs) There are, there are race riots that take place in Chicago, in Washington, DC. Part of this is it's a long, um, moment of what Rayford Logan, he's a famous black historian, he calls the nadir. He basically says from like 1895 till about the 1920s, um, you have all of this racial resentment. Part of the 1920s, you've got like World War One. black soldiers are fighting in this mm-hmm. war. They're coming back and they're being attacked while they're in uniform. You know, they are um, a huge threat to the labor market. You have the Klan is at an all-time high. In 1926, they have six million members last weekend i had my in-laws over and we needed to make dinner in a crunch instead of ordering out we did something even easier thanks to butcher box we were able to grab just what we needed and exactly how much we needed from the freezer after that everything else was a breeze you too can skip the grocery store knowing you have the food you trust and the food you chose in your freezer I know that might sound strange coming from me since I'm vegetarian, but they have a high-quality veggie burger that I absolutely love. They have options for pescatarians, too. And if you eat everything, that's also okay. The food from ButcherBox is high-quality, grass-fed, and free-range. Have peace of mind knowing there are no antibiotics or added hormones. Sign up at ButcherBox.com friendly and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com friendly and use code FRIENDLY to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Six Whoa! Million members yeah it's huge it's huge like everybody joined the clan everybody because it was seen as a um as like a fraternity it's like a social sure group oh there's the barbecue yeah yeah (laughs) they're throwing a barbecue in the park today come join after two o'clock you know whatever like that people joined for a lot of different reasons um it's only until the great depression 
where people realize actually the clan's not solving any of my problems. Sure. Um, and it becomes like, uh, you know, nobody has money during the great depression. So people are less interested in investing themselves in, in these organizations, but, um, yeah, it's in, it's insane. Two yeah. black people per week are lynched for about a 40 year period, men and women. Whoa. Um, and not just black people either. We talk about this on uh, the podcast, like Jewish people were lynched. Chinese people were lynched. Mexicans were lynched. It was mob rule. Mm. Um, against pretty much anybody that disrupted the status quo that is white supremacy. So I bet we can absolutely draw a straight line from the fact that Black Southerners were getting no support from the state or from their like community mm -hmm. writ large and turned to the church and turned very mm -hmm. insular and and that yeah, has yeah. sort of married the Black Americans and the Christian church ever since absolutely. would you say that's a fair okay absolutely i mean the church has always been a pillar mm -hmm. in the black community because it was the place where you went where you got respect you went to church and people called you sir or ma'am no one was doing oh. that outside of that so there's a social sort of affirmation that happens when you're in the presence of other black people and you're a minister or a reverend you are held in a position of high regard mm -hmm. um there was no respect for black people outside of the sacred spaces of like church mm -hmm. um but also it's a space where the church did it was a multifaceted institution so you went there for shelter you went there for a job you went there for um clothing and extra food mm -hmm. you went there for tips about how to get further north you mm -hmm. went there for child care you went there for education a lot of schools started in churches so the church was everything and it was the only institution that black people controlled themselves right mm -hmm. we might not be able to control the schools or the banks but we could control this institution mm -hmm. um and and it sort of maintained that that pillar all throughout african-american history you'd be hard for us to, to find a moment in which the black church is not involved in yeah, some way really wrapped up mm-hmm this is sort of a strange question. I was thinking last night about how we as a collective, as Americans, think about the legacy of slavery. So growing mm. up for me, the Underground Railroad was like the story, right? Mm -hmm. It was, this is the cool ass story for like the same, only interesting same. historical <laughs> story. They same. went underground. They yeah. secret tunnels. Yeah. Like, you tell me about a secret tunnel and I'm here for it. Yeah, same. I When I was a kid, I used to read the Babysitter's Club and I, I think mm. it was Babysitter's Club and one of them had like a secret tunnel Passage that was connected way. to the Underground Railroad. Like that was a whole Love thing. It. Love it. And it, do you have a sense of how people think about it now? Like given mm. that we politicize the crap out of everything to the point that yes. people are like, was Harriet Tubman a which is the it's hottest like crazy. the hottest spiciest take is actually Harriet Tubman was a criminal like it's, oh it's, this is what I mean doing. oh sorry my it <laughs> love the dog no it's insane because um first of all I don't think that we have a healthy understanding of the underground railroad. No. Like, I have to tell my students, no, there's no train. train. Not really, Kate. That's not, we're talking about a network, right? We're not. <laughs> an emotional an, railroad. 
Yes, and it's and it's houses. You know what I mean? It's people's attics or basements. It's not, um, you know, you hop on the number nine to right. get to Philadelphia or whatever. Like that that doesn't exist. But I think we have all of this um, romanticism or nostalgia around something as secretive and as worthy as the Underground Railroad. And I kind of want to demystify that a little bit because it was incredibly dangerous. Most people are not able to run away. The majority of enslaved people stay enslaved. And when you ran away, you had to be armed and you had to be willing to die because people were constantly chased. And so oftentimes it's not just like, you know, flight or fight. It's you have to fight in order to flee. Like, Mm -hmm. and so Harriet Tubman's always packing a gun. And there's a reason because Mm -hmm. she was always being chased. People were always on the lookout for her. Um, I mean, these were really high stakes because enslaved people cost so much Mm -hmm. that it was a lucrative business to be a slave catcher. If you could kidnap a black person and sell them into slavery for $1,500 or $1,000, I mean, this is like, I don't know, think of the black market or some sort of underground market jug trade or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's highly lucrative Mm -hmm. and violent and deadly, like... Um, the drug game is the only thing that I can sort of like uh, equate to it with the level of violence, the level of wealth that gets produced by enslaved labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not this kind of like, um, I don't know, sweet story of running away in the middle of the night with a lantern mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's like dogs <laughs> catching you, chasing you. It's terrifying. Oh my God. Can so you when imagine? I think of like, you know, I don't know. I, I fell in love with like American girl doll collection. I love I Addie. <laughs> I loved Addie. I loved, um, uh, she's another Mildred D. Taylor. She wrote, um, like let the circle be unbroken in these, um, stories that probably are the reason why absolutely are the reason why I'm a historian today, Uh but I couldn't get enough of them. But I think now we have to be a lot more honest about what is entailed i tell people there's a really good story called um if you traveled along the underground railroad and it's a story maybe meant for like fourth or fifth graders or like middle school um depending on how advanced your child is but it's a great way to introduce them to like what is the underground railroad Mm. who was running it what were they doing what were they up against um it uses very plain language to make it clear and understanding but also has really good pictures and images for you to understand um so yeah i tell people all the time like this is this was uh you know it's like the deadliest catch was was the underground (laughs) railroad um because the stakes were so high Mm -hmm. you know So your uh your book is about the history of violence. And why mm-hmm. is it that we mark time by violence? violence? I that is a good did, question. Did y'all bring that up on on this day? I don't I think, I think it was we y'all talked but, about it. Yeah. I, somebody said that and I was like like my whole brain just exploded. The historical timeline is every dot on it is violence. It's like, you know, the American Revolution, uh-huh. the Civil War, or World War One, World War Two, 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, like Vietnam. Yeah. Um, major violent acts, you know, I think of like the death of Emmett Till or the death mm-hmm. of four little girls in, in the Birmingham church. Like mm-hmm. we, assassinations, you know, we mark time with violence rarely very rarely on a historical timeline do we mark it with something like a party (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a birthday. The Great Depression, I guess, would be a non-violent bit. I'm trying to think of something that is not violent that we mark on the 4th of July. Even that's violent. That's violent. Just listen to the episode about Laddie Boy. We could call that something. (laughs) I mean, we understand change over time through violence. I think violence is an engine. I think it propels us along Mm -hmm. from movements and moments, um, and major change. And, um, and one of the ways that we understand, I think revolutions, a revolution is just like a new system a replacement of something. Um, but revolutions are often violent. The American revolution, the French revolution, the Haitian revolution, like we understand revolutions as not just change, but change marked by violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how to bring about meaningful, lasting revolutionary change that does not involve violence. Mm-hmm. Um, Because even if you look at the long freedom struggle or the civil rights movement and you could say, well, that was nonviolent. And it's like, actually, not really. People were being killed all the time. They're actually responding to violence. The whole freedom struggle is a response to white supremacist violence at the auction, uh, at the at the voting booth, you mm -hmm. know, at the lunch counter Mm -hmm. in schools. Um, Yeah. So I don't know how we talk about anything without talking about violence. <laughs> the short answer. No, absolutely. That completely makes sense. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about oh, Wait, do you have any other? Wait, let's dig back into the, some, uh, the 19th century before we get to Oprah. Yes. <laughs> I just, just love so talking about it. Um, actually, yeah, yeah. Before we get to Oprah, quickly, I would love to talk a little bit about the Black Panthers and J. Edgar Hoover mm. as so J. Edgar, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover has recently become like a historical obsession with me because that man mm. was a lunatic yeah yeah and, and he had a long career as most lunatics do they always. seem to live forever they just thrive <laughs> on 20s, chaos he's in the 60s you're like when does this man die yeah um J. Edgar Hoover. Wow. So funny because um, my son, shout out to my son, William, he just won student council and he had to give a speech. And in the speech, we we talk about like black history stuff all the time. And so I guess we had just done the Black Panther breakfast program. (laughs) And so he gave a speech and he said, um, I want you to elect me for student council because the Black Panthers provided free breakfast for all kids. And I want everyone to get free snacks and free lunch. (laughs) Oh my god! I was I'm dying. So happy right now. I was dying, what? but he won. He won. So apparently, <laughs> said, "Oh, and and we need a garden, and everyone can get free food from the garden." I was like, "You've got great ideas, son. Great ideas. Is he gonna get there at four a.m. and whip up some eggs for everybody?" I know, right? <laughs> so he, you know, we we uh, do our best to try to incorporate them in the conversations we have about like history or whatever. But when it comes to Black Panther Party. It's just the the story of the Black Panthers, I think, is um, a really sad one in the mm-hmm. sense that the ideas that they had were so progressive and so revolutionary and so basic, right? Food, mm-hmm. <laughs> school, health, like those were the things that they were pushing. Protection. Hey, I don't want to be killed by the police. You know, we're, we're not asking for like extraordinary things. Um 
And they, within a matter of a few years, um, one, become really, really successful at mm-hmm. feeding all of the, um, anyone who wants free breakfast, lunch, dinner, what have you, at providing health care for Black people when health clinics weren't due, providing ambulances when no one would come to the hood, mm-hmm. providing protection when people felt like their lives were at risk. Um and Hoover systematically undermined them at every turn. He had um, hired the first black FBI agent to work as a as a spy for the um, for the Black Panther Party, you know, and to stir up trouble. Matter of fact, Black Panthers always said they could tell who was a cop because it was the first person who would say, let's blow this place up. Let's bomb it. And like, you're an informant. Get that man out of here. Like they always knew because they were never pushing for like violence, throwing sure. cocktails. So always informants. Um, drugs, I think became a huge issue as well. You know, Huey Pete Newton gets addicted to drugs. Mm. Uh, a lot of um, the Panthers spent most of their time fighting lawsuits and being in the courts mm. and, you know, the judicial system really gets the better part of the movement. Um, and so when I say it's it's unfortunate, I'm saying in that sense, I think all the things that they pushed for were the same things that the Black Lives Matter pushes for today or mm-hmm. something that the abolitionist movement or civil rights people were pushing for. They wanted more than just um, the vote. They wanted food. They wanted jobs. They mm-hmm. wanted full citizenship. They wanted protection. They wanted good schools for their kids. Um, and Hoover was adamant about destroying them, adamant. And so um, there was nothing that they could do. There's something that uh, me and a good friend of mine, she's a Panther scholar. We talk about this all the time because she says, you know, the Black Panthers, when they came out, they were all about self-defense and they all had guns and, you know, like they pushed the Second Amendment right and all this stuff. And she said very quickly, they understood, actually, this is getting us killed. Guns Mm -hmm. are not effective. Guns are not going to get us free. Mm -hmm. We just need to worry about feeding our people and, you know, getting them healthy and getting them educated. And I was like, isn't that something that the United States government is more terrified of a healthy, fed, literate Black person than they are a Black person with a gun? (laughs) That is mind-boggling. It's absolutely wild that it felt so urgent to them. Like, this felt Mm -hmm. so dangerous to them. It's so insidious. I would love to circle back around something you said. I... The interesting thing about, so I was, I'm, as an adult, getting very, very into American history. It wasn't, I was a lit major, so I sort of had all things around mm-hmm. that, but, but now I'm really enjoying learning more to kind of connect dots in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one theme I keep seeing over and over again is when cops are infiltrating groups to find these dangerous people they're usually the ones inciting violence yes Yes. and it's nothing makes me like deeply angry more than that kind of shit of Mm. the the cop comes in to find these insidious terrible people and he is the one who is starts all the trouble starts Uh all the drama it's yeah what are we what are we doing gang like what how I know this- it's so crazy that even in the 19th century, I talk about this in my book, some of the most effective slave catchers were black. 
because they could win the trust of other fugitive slaves and say oh hey you're trying to get to freedom come with me i'll show you and then they take them to the next place and then sell them down the river to somebody else like you Mm. will you will always have mercenaries right you will always have hired hands you will always have people that won't do right Mm -hmm. and i think the the federal government and the local government are always attuned to like who they can hire to be that mercenary who they can compel to do that work um And I think when you have people that are starved for jobs and food and shelter, you don't have to bribe that much to say, hey, I got a good job for you. You want to make $100? You want to make $1,000? I need you to go snitch on these people. I need you to go make this peaceful rally look horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, Threaten to throw a bomb or something like that. You know, like they knew the ways that they could undermine Black success and they did. Um, And... And that's, that's the tragedy of it. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like reconstruction. The tragedy is not that it happened, that the, the thing is it was successful and it worked. Mm-hmm. The tragedy is that it was never allowed to fully blossom, to fully bloom into the revolutionary work that creates sustainable change, mm-hmm. well, and, permanent change. Yes. Well, and conservatives really are kind of geniuses in how they are dismantling the um the american understanding of the black experience because i mm. like i didn't learn about so generational wealth is a thing that i don't think people can grasp especially without obviously learning it as a kid so mm-hmm. i i was in my 30s before i learned that the the gi bills from world mm-hmm. war ii were not extended to black yeah. soldiers and there were God, there's yeah, redlining and yeah. all of all of the. I mean, when you think about the <laughs> the question, Tanahasi Coates talks about this too. Like reparations is not just about slavery. <laughs> like it's not just about money lost with slavery. That there's that we can mm. put that on one table, but on the other table, you think about the wealth lost from the GI Bill. Yeah, the be being able to attend a college for free, to buy a home with no no um payment down like I mean we bought our first home my husband was a veteran so we bought our first home with the VA loan so it's Mm -hmm. like you think about the kind of wealth that people build with their homes Mm -hmm. um all of that wealth is lost it's gone you think about the 2008 crisis and how black and brown communities were getting these subprime mortgage loans Mm -hmm. and then within a few years white america's recovered but black and brown people have not like it is it's astounding how how theft takes place it's not just about unpaid wages Mm -hmm. it's also about like the theft of the ability to build you know, generational wealth for the following, um, for the following generations. It's, it's staggering. I can't think about it too long because like, (laughs) it makes me mad. You know what I mean? I think about like what my grandparents could have had or my great grandparents could have had. Um, and they say it also takes five generations to build wealth. So if I count like from my generation, maybe I'm generation five. So maybe Uh I'll be the first to give my kids something sure. substantial. But um, but even that, you worry like, what if some kid messes up and the next thing you know, it's gone for the next, you know, like it's it's so precarious. Mm-hmm. Wealth is so precarious. 
Um, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it in the classroom. We don't talk about like how when grandma dies, you get $250,000 and I get $50,000 in debt. You know, like there's a, there's not an even playing field at work. Um, we don't have enough conversations about that. No, I was uh, speaking to a friend of mine who has two teenage daughters um, who are about to go to school, uh, college, mm-hmm. and she was complaining about the the scholarships. Oh, I can't find any scholarships because they're white and we're Christian and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And we're working hard and we're scraping by and blah, 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 blah. And I kind of had the opportunity to sit with her and say, like, okay, well, say one of your girls fails out of college she can come back home, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'll have a bed for her and be able to feed her if that doesn't work out. Not everybody has. You remember when Mitt Romney said something about like, (laughs) hey, if you have to take a loan from your parents. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what? Dang. <laughs> what loan? What loan for my parents? That's what happening. Saying? I mean, I I kid you not. This one of my friends called me and she just bought a house in Colorado. She was really happy and her husband um had it built from the ground up and all of that. And she said she met her next door neighbors and they were high school dropouts. I think one <laughs> graduated high school. Neither one of them had gone to college. Sure. But um and, and she was like how are you like we both have master's degrees like how are we neighbors and she said oh yeah we wanted to buy a house so our parents gave us $250,000 to oh Oh. it was like okay like the idea of just you know you get married and here's your house like that does not happen in most marginalized communities where wealth is not being you know generated in that way so yeah, there's no way. I mean, I think when I moved into my house, my mom bought me some pots. Like, and I was really happy. <laughs> I was like, oh, great, I can cook. <laughs> but put down a down payment? Are you kidding me? No, no. there's no down payment. No. <laughs> yeah, they're not They're not sitting on that somewhere waiting for you to, to call up and be like, hey, I'm ready to tap into. Have you seen yeah. Dairy Girls? No. Okay. It's outstanding, but there's a thing where they're trying to get money to go to Paris for a school trip. And the one girl is like, oh, I'm just dipping into my, um, uh, shoot, what is it that my inheritance, I'm just dipping into my inheritance. And so these girls who all live in like a, a poor, basically the projects of in Ireland are like, um, could I just go ahead and dip into my inheritance to, grab that and she's like oh uh uh-huh yeah yeah yeah." and just like the next day they're walking to school like I guess we're poor I don't don't." no that's real it's (laughs) it's real outstanding there's there's nothing that um there's nothing you can it's not that you can't even pull from your parents or your grandparents um it's that even when you do get something even when you're like, I finally made it, mm-hmm. that money goes elsewhere. Do you know what I mean? That money's helping grandma and your parents and your aunties and your cousins and everybody else who needs to get up the ladder. That's and the story so of every professional athlete yeah, who makes it big. Yes. So it's it can't be, on the one hand, you don't want to be selfish. On the other hand, it's not sustainable to to give to everyone. But mm-hmm. like, it that's how overwhelming it is when mm-hmm. you want to be able to pay it forward and yet you know how are you ever going to accumulate wealth if you can't keep wealth well and nobody's and nobody's taught them how to manage money so all of a sudden you're like oh god i have 10 million (laughs) 
facts. Like, I, I mean, I just, I, I learned maybe in the past several years, my husband's really into it now, but like, I had no idea how I just thought you have a checking account and a savings account. <laughs> When you get a little extra money, you put it in the savings account. <laughs> and then you save and save and save until you get, I don't know, a million dollars. Like you you have money, you wait a year, and then you get a lot more money. How do I save. do that? Yeah. yeah. How Can do I you make money, make money? Like, and, but it's also, I mean, we talk about this in my colleagues. It's incredibly intimidating if you don't have that <laughs> infrastructure that know how to then go out and say okay I'm going to take a thousand dollars which took me six months to save let's mm-hmm. just say and put that in a and put this in some amorphous account that I don't know what it's gonna do even if it will make you a, another thousand dollars right you're still not trusting because you're like do you know how long it took me to get this money uh-huh. I'm not throwing this in some stock market for it to like you know go away so yeah I mean I had a conversation with my brother-in-law just trying to get him to like I was like just start small just invest in um what is it it's like stash it's like where you can like pick the stocks you want to invest in Mm -hmm. or whatever so it was like um just start out small you know but telling him to take a big chunk of money and do that it's um it's overwhelming yeah it really is you need somebody that can walk you through it Mm -hmm. and most people don't have that Unless they were watching Oprah and got yeah. some financial <laughs> tips there. That's a segue, my friends. <laughs> segue? <laughs> like, oh God. Oh God. If we could talk about how Oprah, I mean, listen, I love Oprah. I do. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'm like, man, billionaires be so out of touch. <laughs> like, no. so- <laughs> I think that is why Oprah Demix is such an outstanding podcast is it's not we're just going to take an hour a week and fawn over Oprah and gloss over her flaws and only bring out the good things in Dr. Oz who like yeah yeah um but you all you and your co-host sit with these things in a way that I we did a whole episode on Dr. Oz (laughs) a whole episode on Dr. Oz and the sort of Mm. I would love to talk about the episode of Oprah on the uh the LA riots oh yeah (laughs) some of the wildest audience participation questions I have good ever heard that episode was so much fun to do because we got to do it with our friend elizabeth hinton who studies like riots and violence and i realized that like aside from maybe twitter today we don't have we don't have like the 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 water cooler spot where people come and you have an audience made up of tons of different kinds of people and everyone's sort of giving their takes or getting the mic and giving their two cents and uh, the idea of like having a talk show and this is before you know when Oprah first starts out she's not um it's not just her on the stage not engaging she's all in the audience mm-hmm. she's, you over here okay you over here okay tell me this like and it's it was like a time capsule mm-hmm. of just seeing how much has changed how much has stayed the same a lot of it has stayed the same um and trying to figure out like, wow, what do we do with that today when we don't, we're so siloed into our own sort of like thought groups that we Mm -hmm. don't have a space 
where talk shows come together and and let people sort of air their dirty laundry or their baggage yeah. or whatever. Um, and even now I think about the talk show scene, it's all done by celebrities. Like there's not like t- the original talk shows, they were nobodies. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sally Jesse Raphael, like Ginny Jones, they just came out of like nowhere. They had no name recognition, no followers. <laughs> like nobody knew Oprah. Uh-huh. And and everybody watched them. Now you can't get into the game unless you already have yeah. you know, a Grammy or like yeah. a million followers or whatever. And then the conversations are so highly curated. You can't you can't really have a discourse in the way that they were. Mm-hmm. Um and but we need that now because when we think about the Rodney King beating that that was the Tyree Nichols of our day, you sure. know, of my day. That was my current event in the third grade. Mm-hmm. Like we needed ways to talk about that. And Oprah created a space, not just Oprah alone, because other people were, I mean, it's like the Haiti of time uh, mm-hmm. talk shows, daytime talk. But um, people were doing that in ways that I just, we can't even get our mind around now. Mm-hmm. But like those conversations are gold. Yeah. Ratings gold. Everything gold. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, the exchange between the two white ladies Oh we're like, gosh, yes. Can you yes. kind of walk us through that? It's the that way. Go the, watch this episode. If you can go on YouTube, they're on YouTube now, and you can watch. I'm pretty sure the whole episode. And she she was in LA. She took her show to LA for the whole week, so she mm-hmm. was there, like you know, talking to everybody. Luke Gossett Jr. The actors there. A whole bunch of people are there. There's a a discourse that happens between a younger white woman and an older white woman. So the younger white woman is sort of like. You know, we didn't see the whole tape. We didn't know all that happened. You know, like trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the cops mm-hmm. and all of this. And the audience is just like apoplectic. Like they cannot take what this young girl is saying. And each time she speaks, she sort of digs her hole a little bit deeper. Like she's <laughs> so like, horrible to I, watch. I'm educated. <laughs> I just graduated college. Like we're like, oh she my God. She might as well have yelled, I'm a good white. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was bad. So this older white woman really sort of like pulls her to that like oh no 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 (laughs) you don't understand like I I lived through the 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 civil rights movements 20 years ago like Uh uh for her it's very recent and she's like I know how people interact in the south I know like all the social norms I know how white supremacy works I'm fluent in it and you are missing something Mm -hmm. very key to this discussion and she says to her you know you don't be the dog like that you don't you don't beat anything like that like there's no rationale that you can come up with that can make that beating make sense Mm -hmm. um and everyone in the audience is just like you know clapping and all that stuff but it was a moment in which i think one you almost forget that oprah's there a little bit like she's holding the mic but she's not um you know she's not really holding court she's letting it happen yeah yeah yeah. she's letting it and she's probably thinking this is ratings gold (laughs) (laughs) but it was just such a tv moment to see these two white women of two different generations Mm -hmm. grappling with their understanding of racism Mm -hmm. and how the older white woman could call a spade a spade Mm -hmm. and how the younger white woman really couldn't. And this I think is so important because we think that the younger generation is more progressive. We think, Oh, you know, we just have to wait for all the grandma and grandpas to die and then we'll get the world we want to live in. And it's like, no, that's not how this works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that there are young people who don't know 
but are also steeped in bad history and bad politics. And they perpetuate those ideas. Um, They perpetuate them in their thinking, in their voting, in their shopping, purchasing, whatever. Um, That, that the, the way we understand racism is not at all dependent upon age. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, or experience or educational level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cause she, she makes a claim about being college educated or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> girl, you missed a serious education, but it's wild. I mean, that episode, I have a lot of favorite episodes. It's really hard to pick a favorite one, but that was one of the first episodes we did in for the podcast. And it just, um, it resonated with people. I think it took people back. You know what I mean? It took people back to that moment for those who had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. They could also sort of imagine like what TV was like in the eighties and nineties and sure. wild. I mean, the experience, there's so many like specific experiences that are no longer a thing. Like, you know, going to Blockbuster on Friday night, but like, yeah. <laughs> You know that feeling of like, oh my God, it's 2.58. I have to get home in two yes. minutes and get on my couch for this thing to start. I will go yeah. to the bathroom during the commercial break. Like that's yes. This yes. Is priority number one. Yes. It's such a like weird like piece of history that's just sort of. No, we don't watch TV at a certain time anymore. Yeah. I mean, I watch things when I can get to them, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I may watch the news or even the Grammys. Like if I missed it, I can just watch the clips on Twitter or whatever, or, or social media. Um, nothing gets watched in real time yeah. anymore. Yeah. I think HBO kind of has the lock on like all of us is pretty good right now. And yeah. like, it's the first time we're doing that since like Game of Thrones ended, which was. Yeah. Yeah. But even that, even still, like I love binging. So even when something mm-hmm. comes out, I give it two to three weeks. Like mm-hmm. don't anybody say anything. <laughs> like So that, because the what I found is that oftentimes when I watch the first episode, the next thing I want to do is watch the second one. And so I try to give myself like a build up in order to do that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I lot, watch a lot of stuff like during the breaks, like summer and, mm-hmm. you know, winter break or whatever is when I consume a lot of stuff. But unless it's like a, like a breaking news or mm-hmm. um, like something happening at this moment. Oh, mm-hmm. do you see what's going like January 6th? I remember all my friends were calling me. Are you watching the news? Are you watching the cat? And I was like, what is going on? What is going on? Like that I watch live, right? Yeah. Like, but very few instances are like that. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, but yeah. like, um, totally. but nothing requires a whole lot of immediate attention, mm-hmm. which is why we're inundated with things that are trying to get our attention. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. I want to be mindful of, of your time. We're coming up. Oh yeah, I know, I know. We got to wrap up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> have another um, meeting in a half hour. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, totally forgot. This was great though. It shows you how fast it can go by. <laughs> it just flew, but I just was like, yep. mm, that can't be right. Did my <laughs> clock stop working? Um, Okay, Dr. Carter Jackson, where can we find you on the internet? Mm, I am all over. I am on Twitter still. It is what it is. That's what we <laughs> literally every episode we're like, we're still on Twitter, I guess. I uh, no. until further notice. <laughs> hey, K Carter Jackson is my hashtag. I'm on Instagram, but not really. I only get on Instagram to just look at pictures and I don't even heart. I just scroll. <laughs> <laughs> 
I never post anything. I think the last post I had was like when my daughter was born three years ago. Like, like I never post. I'm on Facebook, but that's like more like for family and friends so they can see the kids and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I try to post if I have a talk coming out or something. But mostly you can catch me on this day in esoteric political history three times a week uh, or wherever you get your podcast. And we are starting up with season two of Oprah Demix. We will likely have a new name because, you know, we got sued. So- <gasps> what? <laughs> By whom? Oprah? Oprah? <laughs> we did. Wait, we did. Wait, Harpo what? Let me tell you something. There is nothing more terrifying than seeing your name in the Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> and it's just like Harpo Inc. versus Jackson. And you're like, what? <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, yeah, it's Wait, is it just because you literally used her name? Yeah, and you know, she wasn't a fan of us using the name. So um and I think that, you know, it was it, we were in the works to change it anyways, but now we're definitely so we don't we still don't know what the new name will be. Probably in the next month or so uh-huh. we'll have a new a new name and you can still go to the old, you know, like you can still go to Oprah Demix and then mm-hmm. eventually it will forge you to like a new um our, what our new name is going to be. So yeah. if you've got ideas, <laughs> you know, I will, know, I'm going to brainstorm yeah. on this all day. Um, <laughs> that's outstanding. Um, Dr. Carter Jackson, I think you are as good a um, historical communicator as there is. I feel like I have listening to you sit and digest things in context of today and in context of the, the contemporary time, it's I. It's been a masterclass. I cannot recommend this day pod anymore. And they're what 15, 20 minute episodes yeah, yeah, for yeah, this quick. niche thing in in history. And sometimes it's something huge. This past week, it was about whose dog Warren G. Harding's dog yeah. Laddie. <laughs> There's been like four presidential pet episodes. We like pets. We, we like, like pets. pets. <laughs> Family. Um. And and Overdemics truly like I I just really adore how you are really unflinching about being honest about Oprah's legacy while still being a fan, but mm. not letting her off the hook for some really messed up shit she's yeah. pulled. Stay forward, stay stay tuned to stay uh, season two. It's it's no joke. I'm no joke. I'm really excited about it. Okay, Thanks. thank you so so much for your time and your thank work, you. and um, I I hope we get to speak again soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you, my pleasure. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Bye.